Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray uh, for your particular help uh, this morning. Of course, we always need your help. Uh, but these deep things of God, uh, as we confessed last week, uh, you are incomprehensible. Uh, no one but yourself can, can comprehend your nature, your being uh, fully. Uh, and yet you have revealed much truth, uh, much true knowledge about yourself in your word. And that is what we look to now. And we pray, especially as we contemplate this uh, mysterious, but glorious doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that you will help us, help me to be careful and clear in my language as we seek to put uh, into into human words that which is beyond uh, human comprehension. We pray this in the name of Christ for his glory. Amen. All right, welcome. And uh, getting back into our confession, and we come to chapter 3. I was talking with uh, another Reformed Baptist pastor this week, uh, actually Micah Renahan, but he uh, he's teaching through the confession now as well. And uh, I think he took or is taking so far like three or four weeks on the first couple of paragraphs of chapter two. And I said, I did them all in one week, <laughs> which is kind of embarrassing to say to another Reformed Baptist pastor. And, and as he said, I mean, you could, you could pick each one of God's attributes and do a whole Sunday school lesson on them. Uh, obviously, we're, we're trying to move things along a little bit more quickly than that here. Uh, but that does bring us to, uh, to paragraph three. Now, I had this picture up last week. Uh, I've probably said this before. Does anyone know what this is called? This is a, a pretty ancient, uh, I don't know exactly how far back it goes. Uh, but if you, sometimes you see it where, you know, the bigger side is on top and it kind of looks like a shield. Uh, it's called this the shield of the Trinity or the Trinity shield. Uh, it is actually one of my favorite ways of, of trying to just really summarize and depict the doctrine of the Trinity. I think it's the safest way. Uh, you try to use any other earthly illustration and you fall into one ditch or the other of heresy. Uh, so you don't use an egg. You don't use a, 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 a three-leaf clover, a shamrock, uh, although I guess that'd be appropriate. When is St. Patrick's Day? It's the 17th, right? So we're coming up to it. Uh, but yeah, St. Patrick sometimes gets raked over the coals with his uh, Trinitarian analogy, so to speak. Uh, but I, I like this. Now, this is all in Latin, of course. You can see this. Um, but it stands for, and I have one in English coming up, so I don't know if I need to take too much time about this. But uh, this is pater, father, filius, son, and spiritus, uh, the spirit. Uh, and actually, it's two S's. It's the spiritus sanctus, so the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then you have uh, Deus in the middle, which is God, and then the word est, connecting God to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is, so God is the Father, you can also reverse this, the Father is God, God is, or, sorry, this is the Son, yeah, this is the Son, Phileus, Father up here, Father is God, God is the Father, the Son is God, God is the Son, uh, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is God, God is the Holy Spirit, but then, in between the, as we normally call them, persons of the Trinity, you have non-est, is not. And so, uh, while they are all God, the Spirit is not the Father, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Spirit. Uh, so there's the distinctions of the person, and yet they all participate in the essence of God. They are fully uh, uh, have in themselves the, the essence of God. They are the one God. 
So as you can see, it's uh, it's ancient. This is I don't know carved into some sort of pulpit or something. But so if any of you ever wants to build me a pulpit or the pulpit that we have, carve that into it. I'd, I'd be fine with that. Uh, but it's it's I really think that it's helpful. I, I like that you know I talk about that with with our kids. I think even kids can see that and and start to understand the language of the Trinity, uh, all God, but they are not each other, uh, distinct in their their personhood. All right, so. I'm not clicking through there. We will progress. All right. Uh, still in first principles, we go over this every week. We're not going to take too much time. Of course, the principle of knowing scripture, chapter one, the principle of being, uh, of existence, uh, is God himself and his, uh, his decree, his acts of creation and providence, and then encompassing the fall as well, but certainly God himself as the principle, the first uh, principle of being. Uh, we looked, uh, we're looking at in chapter two, his nature, then his decree, uh, God's nature, uh, in chapter two, we looked at, uh, just the, the one true God, his existence, some of his fundamental attributes, uh, and then his attributes, particularly in relation to that, which is not God, which means creation <laughs> and especially his his moral, uh, intelligent crea- creatures, uh, mankind, uh, but his external relations, so how he's related to that which is outside of God. But then the third paragraph is God's what's called internal relations, so the relations of God within himself. Uh, sometimes you, you hear people use language like inter-Trinitarian fellowship or relation. Now, it's not inter it's intra, right? So it's within, right? If you have intramural sports, it's with other schools. If you have intramural, it's within the school itself, right? So this isn't multiple trinities relating to each other. This is just a relationship within God itself, intra-Trinitarian. Uh, but these, his, his relations. So this is, in essence, uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, our confession uses some very precise... Uh, and, uh, and, and very technical language that has a long history in theology. And so there's going to be some words and some terms that might be less familiar to us here today, uh, but that's okay. We can be introduced to those things. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the Trinity going on right now, so as you hear some of that, hopefully this will just give you a little bit of a foundation and know what we as a church and what our Reformed Baptist uh, brethren believe on these matters too. Now, this is uh, the comparison document, again, from Jim's uh, True Confessions. Uh, and uh, put this up here again to sh- show there, there is actually some significant uh, addition uh, in our confession to the Savoy, that's this, and the Westminster. You can see they're identical on this. This is the first London Confession of Faith. So our Reformed Baptist forefathers in the second London thought, yeah, this is a good orthodox statement in the Westminster and the Savoy, but we think that there's some good stuff as well, some good emphases in the first London that we want to retain, that we want to bring over. So uh, in this divine and infinite being, so instead of in the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons, uh, which is interesting. They use the the word persons, which most of us are probably familiar with. Uh, But in this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, uh, our confession uses the word subsistences instead of person, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about why in a moment. Uh, then identifies, then the Father, Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, agreeing with the, uh, its parent documents, 
each having the whole divine essence, and yet the essence undivided. Uh, so it's important to head off certain Trinitarian heresies that we'll talk about. Uh, and then just picks up the language uh, here uh, for the most part, except uh, changes the Holy Ghost to the Holy Spirit. It's kind of interesting, but I like that. Uh, these days you talk about the Holy Ghost and everyone looks at you kind of wonky, <laughs> unless you were raised on the King James or something. Well, and if you sing the doxology every week or something. Uh, but the ghost is easier to rhyme than spirit, so <laughs> it gets in a lot of our hands. Uh, the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. Uh, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Uh, and then, as you can see, there's another lengthy section in, sorry, this was a page break, and I'm not fancy enough to know how to take that out in, in a picture. I can probably figure that out sometime, but it's just a page break in the copy that I have. But you can see, it takes over another lengthy section. That, that's where the Westminster ends. Uh, and so we take over a lengthy section again from the first London Confession, and then we take a section that was added in the Savoy and keep that as well. So we've added a lot to the Westminster on the doctrine of the Trinity. So all infinite without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished, and here's where some technical terminology from the first London gets added back in, but distinguished, right? So important language, it's not divided, right? The essence of God is not divided, but the persons are distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Uh, so that's fun language. Uh, but it, it means something very specific, and, and I'll, I'll point that out to you. And then uh, concludes, adding this language from the Savoy. Uh, I like this. Ends on a very devotional note. Which doctrine of the Trinity, right, this difficult doctrine, there is actually a pastoral practical, you know, value to this doctrine, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. Uh, so good, good statement to end with, but let's, uh, let's pull this apart. Uh, we just read the whole thing. That's, uh, that's it all together uh, as it goes, but let's, uh, Let's outline this. I'll make a couple of initial, there's the, uh, the English version that looks, looks a little bit more like a, a shield as well. It's got that shape of a shield to it. Uh, but that's, that's what this all means. You know, the Holy Spirit is, is not, uh, and, and you see all the different relations between themselves and the, the essence of the Godhead as well. Uh, but this is uh, really the, the, the main ideas that are pointed out in this, uh, in this paragraph. First, the, the confession of the three subsistences within God, within uh, the Godhead. Uh, their identity, so who they are. Uh, their commonality, so what they share in common. Uh, but then also what distinguishes them, their distinct properties and relationships. And then uh, the final statement of the, the importance and the value of this doctrine. Now, several uh, initial observations about the Trinity. Uh, and I know this, uh, we've talked about the Trinity before, uh, haven't done it for a while in real detail, uh, but there is, uh, we have to confess a great mystery here, right, to say that God is one and three, that there is nothing else in creation, there is nothing else in human experience where we have oneness and threeness that can be predicated of the same being, 
Uh, and so, uh, uh, because there is a great mystery and we don't have anything else, you know, again, there's been those attempts to give a, a, a creaturely or human analogy to this. Uh, those always fall short in some major way. Uh, but because there's a great mystery here, uh, there is, we have to acknowledge also, a limitation in human language and in human comprehension, but certainly then even more so in human language to try to describe something that we have no direct experience of, right? We see these truths revealed in God's word and we're doing our best as humans, as finite creatures, to put those things together, to express them in ways that are faithful to what we see revealed in the scripture. But you can see even as we've talked about, and we'll talk about in a second, you know, what, what do we call the three? Uh, of course, they're all God, but, you know, there's been all these different terms throughout church history. What's the best word to, to use for them? Most often you hear the word persons, but even in that you can see, well, but are they persons that participate in the divine nature in the same way that I'm a person and participate in human nature? Well, no, because then, yeah, you get, you know, me and Tony and Stephen, we're three people, three distinct humans, but we can't say these are three distinct divine beings, three distinct uh, individual gods. Now we have to try to describe this in a way that's 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 going to maintain. No, there's one God, right? There is. That's what we've already confessed. One God, and all of the things that we've said about God in paragraphs one and two, all have to be said equally and truly and fully about each of these divine persons, subsistences. Uh, but how, but what's the language that we use? And there's a limitation to that. We have to admit no, no language is going to be absolutely airtight in this. And again, it's just simply because this is something that is not true of any creature, of any creaturely being, uh, only of the creator of God himself. And so because there's a great mystery, because there is this limitation in human language and human even just comprehension, uh, therefore there is a long history of discussion on the doctrine of the Trinity. And by the time our confession was written, Right? This is the 1689. There were at least, you know, 1600 years of discussion on the doctrine of the Trinity. And again, most of the great controversies in the early church were over Trinitarian matters. Uh, and some of them dealing with the person of Christ and how we understand the relationship of his deity and his humanity. But that obviously uh, had implications for the doctrine of the Trinity itself. And so there were different proposals throughout the centuries as to this is how we describe this. This is the language that we use. But as some of that language would be misconstrued and distorted to mean something that clearly isn't scriptural, then new language, new terminology had to be, had to be developed that could be more precise. Uh, and so there's a, a long history that we don't have the time and really I would have to really brush up on to, to go back through that history of all the Trinitarian debates. But this is, what we see in our confession is the culmination of centuries and centuries of debate on the doctrine of the Trinity to try to faithfully describe what we see in Scripture, to preserve the distinction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet preserve the oneness of God and the full deity of each of those those persons all right so all that to say that okay yeah we're looking at some terminology that's going to be a little bit unfamiliar that's a little bit uh new maybe to some of us but that's because it is important and it's been ironed out over centuries in order to 
prevent various heresies, various false understandings that don't comport with the doctrine of, of Scripture. Uh, trying to preserve the true oneness, but also the true threeness of, of God. All right, so that being said, let's uh, look at the language of our confession, and then, oh, good, you got a little watermark left up there. That's not on my slides, that's just from the, uh, the projector. It does that every once in a while, but that's kind of nice, actually. Uh, so uh, the three subsistences, so first, their identities. So <clears throat> our, our confession begins, in this divine and infinite being, of course, that's referring back to paragraphs one and two, right? The one true God that we've already defined, everything that we've said about him in this divine and, again, confessing infinite being, right? Infinite beyond our ability to comprehend. There are three subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, so call them the first and second and third persons of, of the Trinity uh, most regularly. Uh, of course, the, the proof texts that are given uh, for us here are certainly some of the key and important proof texts. Uh, we talked a couple of weeks ago about 1 John 5, 7, and known as the Johannine comma. <laughs> the, uh, it's a, it's a, a verse that's in certain manuscripts, but not many. Uh, of the Greek Old Test or Greek New Testament, uh, that again we talked about this. And I have to rehash it, but if you look at in like a King James or a New King James, you'll have First John five seven. It says there are three that testify in heaven: the the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, or the Father and the Word and the Spirit. I can't remember now. And these three are one. It's a pretty direct, clear statement of the developed you know doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, but again almost certainly not original to the text. It was probably a note that someone wrote in the margin that eventually got incorporated into the body of the text. Of course, it made it into the Latin Vulgate, and that's why uh, it, it, uh, it got kind of reintroduced back into certain Greek manuscripts. Uh, so when we subscribe to the Confession, we don't necessarily subscribe to every proof text or to the, the interpretation of every proof text, although for the, the, the most part, uh, they're, they're excellent proof texts. But Matthew 28, 19, what is that? It's the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All right, those three, just uh, you're baptized in worship into the name, the one name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the very least there, you're seeing a coordination of these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, uh, that yeah, certainly indicates that they are all divine. Uh, they are God. They share the one divine name, but it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, what's that? Yeah, it's the, it's the Trini Trinitarian benediction. So that's what we do uh, every uh, afternoon service, right? Uh, the, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You know, so there, indication again, uh, they're on the same level, they are uh, they're coordinate in, in some unique way, these three persons, these three divine uh, subsistences. Uh, so just classic Trinitarian proof text that indicates, yes, they're, they're, they're coordinate, they're all divine, and yet, of course, 
there's one name, one divine name, one God, three persons, uh, but it's that, that language that had to be ironed out in the, in the history of theological debate. Uh, but the unique thing about our confession is that, yes, we use, instead of the word persons, now, later in the, the paragraph, you're going to see a reference to personal relations. Uh, so our, our confession doesn't completely shy away from the language of person to describe uh, the, these, uh, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, but in its most technical definition, it uses this word subsistence. Now, subsistence is not a word that we use very often. If we do, we refer to like subsistence farming, which means just to keep yourself in existence, <laughs> keep yourself in, in being. And that's, you know, kind of the, the baseline notion of it, some being that exists. But it comes to have a very technical, theological, philosophical meaning, and it's why our Reformed Baptist forefathers uh, chose this instead of persons. So what are subsistences? Why not use persons? Well, in the, the history of Trinitarian uh, discussion, as I said, there have been a bunch of different terms that have been proposed to try to describe the three uh, in, a, in a way that's faithful with Scripture. Uh, one of the first, uh, from uh, Tertullian, I think, was the first to really argue for this, is the Latin word persona, uh, or the Greek equivalent, roughly, of that, which is prosopon. Uh, Jaime, what does prosopon mean? Face, yeah. <laughs> it means face, basically. Uh, if, if, uh, if, I can't believe words like this exist in English, but if someone is megaprosopus, it means they have a big face. <laughs> so so if, you, if you want to tell someone that without them having any clue what you're talking about, you can say, you're very megaprosopus. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, you can see, obviously, our English word person comes from persona. So in, in a sense, it, it just means that. It means person or an, an individual. Uh, it came to have this sort of legal sense in Latin that uh, it's, it's a, an individual who is kind of their own legal entity, in essence. Um, and so it was an individual as opposed to, you know, part of a, a collective, you know. Uh, but also, and this is where the problems arise, it... it uh, both of these words could just mean a face, right? So an individual's face, or in the theater, in, in drama, uh, came to refer to a mask originally, like a different face that you put on, or then, uh, by extension, to a different character or to a different role that you, that you portray in a, in a play, in a, in a dramatic presentation. Um, and so, you know, ancient theater, that's what you would do. You had a couple of different masks, and if you're going to be this one person, you put on this mask, and then you move and you put on this mask. Uh, you can see the dangers there with the doctrine of the Trinity. What is the danger there? Okay, yeah, good Trinitarians. Uh, so it's, yeah, I think I have it later, but it's, it's a, a false understanding of the Trinity that comes to be known as modalism. And uh, it just means that the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons in, in that sense, but it's just God kind of acting in one way and presenting himself in one way as the Father, but then presenting himself as a different way as, a, as in the Son, and then in a third way as a, the Holy Spirit. And so in essence, yeah, they're just different masks, they're different characters, they're different roles that are played by God. 
but not that each one of those is a fully divine entity. Or again, see this language entity, individual person. Uh, but person is, if understood correctly, with the proper caveats, is uh, is is language that has a long standing the history of Christian tradition. Obviously, the Westminster and the Savoy some of the greatest theological minds of their day, after all of this discussion, they still thought person is a fine term for this. And so one God and three persons, but at the same time, with those caveats, it doesn't mean that they're three completely individual entities or essences, uh, three gods, that's tritheism. Uh, and it's not just one God, but he's portraying himself in three different guises, three different faces. No, they're three different persons, three different divine subsistences. And so, recognizing some of the limitations, the potential misunderstandings of persona or prosopon, uh, then later in Trinitarian discussion, uh, more technical terms, both in, in, in um, Latin and Hebrew, and in putting these up here, you might think, why do I care about these Latin or, or, or uh, Greek words? Uh, well, they're, they're, they're terms that have a long history in theology, and they come up uh, time and time again. So subsistentia, you can see that's where we get the English version of that, subsistence. So subsistentia, or the Greek term for that is hypostasis, or hypostasis. Um, where do we hear that language in other theological discussion? Okay, yeah, the hypostatic union. So we'll get to that when we get to chapter 8 in particular, <laughs> the person of Christ, right? the hypostatic union in his particular subsistence as the Son, there is the union of the divine and the, uh, and the human. But that, that only applies to the hypostasis of the Son and not to the hypostasis of the, the Father or the Spirit or the subsistence. And, and really, this word... It has, you know, different senses as most words do, but it was kind of developed to, to just have this particular Trinitarian uh, slant to it. And so the, the way that this is generally defined is that a subsistence is an individual instance of a given substance or essence. And so the, the key is that there's the same subsistence, there's the same, or sorry, the same substance, the same whatness, the same essence, the same being, but there are these individual instantiations of, of that being. Uh, so again, this, you can just see how we're human beings trying to struggle with something that is far beyond, right, to put language to something that is far beyond uh, our ability to do. To do. Uh, and so this is the, the, the typical definition that you will see, subsistence. Uh, and our Reformed Baptist forefathers decided subsistence, it's more precise, it's less open to misunderstanding, right? It emphasizes that there's one essence, there's one being, but then there are particular instances of, of, that, uh, of, of that, that one being, that one essence. Uh, hypostasis, by the way, the word itself uh, just to break it apart, hypo, hypo means under, right? If you're hypoglycemic, your blood sugar levels are low. And then stasis means, um, you know, stand, to stand. So this is something that stands under something else, right? So it's the one essence, but then there's a particular standing under that one essence. But without, again, all of those caveats, without that, des uh, that essence being divided. Yes, Elk. 
Yeah. 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 It's kind of, you get the one, but then under that one cis, uh, substance, that one essence, that one being, there are these other individuations. Sure, you're all completely tracking everything. But again, even if you're, you're struggling with this, just to have this terminology and some of these thoughts in your head is, is helpful. Um, so it's, again, what is it trying to do? It's trying to, to take the scripture like the Trinitarian shield, where there are three persons that are all said to be fully divine. Well, what does it mean to be fully divine? It means everything that we've already confessed about God, uh, which means simple, right? Uh, spiritual, without body parts or passions. So these aren't three parts of God. That's impossible, right? Because we've already defined. So we have to try to define this in a way where these aren't just part, that's partialism. That's another Trinitarian heresy, that they're just three parts of God and that together they make up one full God. No, that each and every one of them have the full divine essence as we're going to see, we confess. And yet they are distinct from one another. They're distinguished. And in what way? And that's what our confession struggles to, to define. All right. Well, important uh, Trinitarian language there. And, and just one thing to, to recognize with our confession, choosing to use the word subsistence, it really just is a, a reaffirmation to us that the, the framers, the editors of our confession were very theologically astute, very theologically learned men. They were aware of this whole history of this debate. They decided for themselves, look, we like the word subsistence better than person because we think that it's it's more technical, it's more precise. Yes? The, the instancia in subsistence, would that in any way have a reference to before time? I mean, that... that like instance, like, uh, is that in any way... A, a, Oh. To, to time, but but because the framers are saying, you know, there's not there's not uh, a change, there's not a, a, a mode that God is changing from to time to from, mm -hmm. which requires time. I'm, I'm just wondering. Oh, like it related to the word instant? Yes. Instant. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. That's an interesting question. But but it is absolutely clear, and we'll we'll get to that. I think I'm one of the last uh, slides that I have. Yeah, these things are to be recognized, these distinctions, these things that distinguish them are eternal, <laughs> right? They've always been. It's not that they came, this, this you know, change or this alteration happened at some point. Uh, that, that's interesting. I, I don't know enough to answer that question. Because we, we debated that a lot in philosophy, mm. you know, being in time. Yeah. Being is before time. Being creates time. Yeah, yeah, requires some sort of becoming, yes. some sort of changing. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so moving on from just the language of subsistence and their identity, Father, Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, their commonalities. Now, I've got an ellipsis in the middle of this because our confession, because it does bring back in some of the language from the first London, it kind of makes the same point in, in a couple different places and then makes the next point. Uh, you can go back and see the full text of it yourself. Uh, but of their, their commonalities, uh, it's emphasized again, these three subsistences in this uh, one divine and infinite being. 
they are of one substance, right? So just the, the whatness, right? The nature, the essence, the being of God, one substance, power and eternity, right? And so they're emphasizing, yes, each and every one of them has the full power of the Godhead, is absolutely as eternal as the, the other uh, persons of the Godhead, the other subsistences. And again, which emphasizes this isn't something that comes into being, right? There was the Father, and then at a certain point in time, then the Son and the Holy Spirit came into sort of their individual instantiations. Uh, but each having the whole divine essence, and yet the essence undivided, right? So they have the whole divine essence, but it's not like, again, that essence is, is, is broken up into three different pieces, and they each have a third of the divine essence. Uh, it's just going out of its way to emphasize this point, to, to counter all of these false ideas. Um, it, all infinite, without beginning, again, making the same point, this is not a, a time-defined thing. Uh, all infinite, therefore, but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. So again, emphasizing this again and again, that's not what we're talking about. Again, this assumes all of the doctrine of God in paragraphs 1 and 2, and it is a, a denial of tritheism. It's not three gods, three divine beings, one divine being and three different persons, subsistences. And it's a denial of, of partialism, which I've already described. They're not part of the divine being in each of them. Because that was what some people used to argue. Yeah, you get part of God here, part of God there. It's only when they're all together that you get the one full God. Like, no, absolutely not. That's, again, it's just impossible given our description of the attributes of God in the first couple of paragraphs. He's simple, he's not capable of division into parts. Um, and again, there's, there's no possibility, given our definition of God as an infinite eternal being, that there could be more than one such being, ever. Uh, so one being, denial of tritheism and denial of partialism. Again, uh, the divine name uh, referred to, Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. I am existence itself. First uh, Corinthians eight six one God emphasizing right there's so many many so called gods but there's only one uh, divine being one true God so what they have in common they each have all of the attributes of God that we've talked about in paragraphs one and two everything that can can be said of God can be said equally and fully about each and every one of these divine persons. And it boggles the mind, it's beyond comprehension. It's a great mystery, but I appreciate the work that theologians of the past have done trying to iron out how we are to talk about these things. Uh, and, and again, if, if you mess up at times, I do too. You know, sometimes I will refer to uh, the Trinity and you use plural verbs or plural pronouns when technically you should use singular, <laughs> you know, because it's uh, the one, one divine being. Uh, but uh, God knows we're weak and uh, we're struggling, doing, doing our best. All right, but then this is, is probably the language that's least familiar. Uh, they're distinct properties and relationships. So uh, we've talked about what they have in common, Again, everything, because it's one, one divine being, not divided. But if the, the divine being is not divided into these persons or these subsistences, then how do we distinguish between them? What is it that distinguishes them? And the answer that our confession gives is that what distinguishes them is their distinct properties and 
relationships. And again, within God himself. Right, so not outside of himself, but within God as these divine persons, divine subsistences relate to each other. And you can see really what, what is done here is, is just taking the language of scripture and trying to state it, confess it back. Uh, now, again, there's been a lot of uh, debates in, in the centuries over how to understand all of these particular terms. But yeah, we see in scripture what? The language of the Son being begotten. We see the language of the Spirit proceeding. And so they're just taking this scriptural language without, in some ways, doing a whole lot of interpretation as to the precise mechanics of all of this and what it means. Now, I'll give some caveats, I think, on the next screen. Uh, well, actually, a couple of screens from now, because we've got to define what these things all are. But really, our, our confession is just trying to take that language, be faithful to the scripture. How do we see the, the persons div distinguished? Sorry, not divided, but distinguished. And so uh, these distinct properties and, and relationships, which again, that's technical Trinitarian theological language. Uh, properties. Uh, well, uh, really, uh, what our confession says is peculiar, so unique to themselves, relative properties and personal relations. Now, what's the word that you see in common there? Relate, right? So, relative properties. So, properties is what belongs to themselves, but in relation to the other persons of the Trinity. And personal, see, then that's, that's meaning the persons of the Trinity. It's not shying completely away from that language of personhood. Relations. And so the point is, it's what really distinguishes these persons is just their relationship with themselves within the, the divine being. And what is that? The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. What are these peculiar relative properties and personal relations? It's what's defined right up here. <laughs> what is distinguished? The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, Filioque, and the Son. <laughs> uh, we won't get into that. I think you kind of delved into that, didn't you? Yeah, the doctrine of the spirit, that's right. So just go back and listen to Alex. Uh, and then just the proof texts that are given is where you find that language. Of course, John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was, uh, was God. And, uh, but then who is that word? He is the, you know, monogenes, uh, depending on how you translate that, but traditionally the only begotten of the father. Uh, again, there's a textual variant in verse 18. Uh, the only... God, the only begotten God rather than Son, which I think is even stronger uh, testament to, to Christ's deity. But uh, just that language of, of, Christ, of, of the Son, of the Word, being begotten of the Father. And now again, this is drawing an analogy between God and man here. Right? And so we have to understand this is just an analogy. This is analogous language. Right? Uh, I begot my Son. Is that how we're supposed to understand the Father begetting Christ? No. <laughs> yeah, Alec. Mm -hmm. 
I I don't I don't think so. I don't I don't know that they had any you know older textual evidence of that variant at the time. I'd have to go back and look at the textual apparatus and confirm that with dates and things, but I I don't think so. Um but I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> uh and then John 15:26, what the spirit proceeds from the Father, and then Galatians 4:6 where the spirit is called the spirit of the Son. And so uh in western Christian theology at least uh, the Holy Spirit, it's always been considered proceeding from the Father and the Son. So it's just using that scriptural language. Uh, what does the Bible say about the relationship between the Father and the Son? The Son is begotten of the Father. What does it say about the relationship between the Spirit and the Son and the Father? That the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. <clears throat> uh, so uh, this is uh, what has determined all of this language. Uh, they're distinct properties and relationships. So uh, we see relative properties. Again, that's technical, theological, Trinitarian language. And what are those? Well, there's four of them. Uh, I mean, some have argued maybe for but basically four. Uh, and then again, relative properties. These are just properties that they have. They're unique to them in relation. This is how we define them between uh, themselves. So unbegottenness. There's unbegottenness. There is paternity or begettingness. There is sonship or begottenness. And then there is procession or spiration uh, is the the language uh, that's used. And so uh, what are these relative properties? How is that defined? Uh, This is just from Richard Muller. And again, if you want to really dive uh, into all of this, this is from his dictionary. Uh, But if you want to look at his... um, uh, now I'm blanking on the name of the, yeah, Post-Reformation Reform Dogmatics. He's <laughs> um, got a whole a whole volume on the Trinity and uh, and how all of this language and terminology was, was ironed out. So uh, it says a relative property is specifically an intimate, incommunicable property. So intimate meaning internal in essence, and it's incommunicable, right? And we talked about the difference between communicable and incommunicable attributes. Uh, communicable attributes, there's some way in which we as creatures can reflect that attribute in ourselves. Incommunicable ones are ones that pertain only to God, only to the creator, not in any way to any creature. So it's making that distinction. This is not, when we talk about begetting, we are not talking about any, any sort of thing as the same mechanics, the same process as human begottenness. Uh, but they're incommunicable property. Thus, the incommunicable attributes of God and the personal properties, uh, which is the language of our confession, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, And this leads to then the three personal relations, uh, typically referred to as paternity, so fatherness, (laughs) filiation, sonness, or becoming son, and procession or spiration. And this is how Muller defines these personal relations. In the doctrine of the Trinity, the incommunicable property or mode of subsistence, now, yes, using the word mode doesn't mean he's a modalist, (laughs) but it's how these subsistences relate to the one divine essence of God and uh, how they're distinguished within the one divine essence of God. And uh, this is what identifies the individual persons of the Trinity in relation to each other. So really, in essence, they're just saying, this is the language of Scripture, and this is how we distinguish between the, 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 
the persons of the Trinity, these three subsistences, is really just in how they relate to each other and what the scripture tells us about that. The Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds. The Father is unbegotten, he does not proceed from another. Now, you'll probably have some questions about that. Let me give some caveats in the next screen, and then we can open it up if you have that. And I'll basically just say, good luck, go read Molly. <laughs> but uh, again, it is, it's such a mystery. And I hope, again, we'll, we'll end on, uh, thankfully, as our confession does on that positive pastoral note. So these distinct properties and relationships, so the unbegottenness, the, the, the begot- begettingness, the begottenness, the, the spiration or the procession, uh, these are eternal, right? Our confession says the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, which means there wasn't a moment of time where the Son was not begotten of the Father and became begotten of the Father. It just always has been. This is eternal and, uh, and always will be. So there's no beginning. There's no change within the Godhead in this sense. Eternally begotten. And again, this just why? Because God is eternal, and God is without beginning or end, and what? Each of these three subsistences have the whole undivided essence, and so each one of them must be eternal and without beginning. And so it doesn't, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't imply any sort of beginning or any change. There was a time when it was just the Father, and then he begot the Son, and then they processed the Spirit, or spirated the Spirit, uh, No, these relations have always existed within the Trinity, forever, always will. Uh, So they're eternal, they are internal as well. So these distinctions don't apply to external relations. Now this is a big discussion that's been going on right now. If you've heard the term inseparable operations that's being talked about a lot, I'm just giving you some of the foundation for that so you know what that's talking about. But this is talking about God, again, his internal relations. This doesn't apply uh, to, to his external relations, to his relations with creation. And one of the doctrines of classical Trinitarian orthodoxy that has been kind of recovered and re-emphasized of late is this doctrine of inseparable operations, that really whatever God does he operates, however he operates outside of himself ad extra, that we can't just say, oh, this is the son working, or this is the father working, or this is the spirit working, but that in each of those operations outside of God, it's the full trinity that is at work in everything. Um, and it's, it is a helpful and important and even pastoral doctrine, as, as we'll see in, uh, in just a moment. Um, so it's, 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 yeah, it's making the point that, yeah, you know, whatever God does, yeah, sometimes we attribute something maybe more primarily to the Son or to the Spirit, but it's emphasizing that they're not working independently of the other persons of the Trinity, that really whatever God does, there's the full unity of the, the persons of the subsistences in that external action. But how, then how do we distinguish them? internally, with these internal relations to each other. Uh, So they're eternal, they are internal, and they are personal. I'm going back to the language of person. And what I mean by this? Well, it means that when we talk about the Father begetting the Son, we're not saying that the Son's deity or his essence came from the Father. Or when we talk about the Spirit uh, proceeding from the Father and the Son, we're not to say that, uh, that the Spirit's deity or his essence depends on 
comes from the Father and the Son. Because again, why? That, that can't be, right? What have we confessed about God? God is ase. He, he has his being in and of himself. And if that's true of God, it has to be true of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So their, their being, their essence, does not come from one another. But their personhood, <laughs> their subsistence does. Uh, and that's how that language has been understood. That the personhood of the Son is begotten of the Father. Uh, and in essence, yeah, you can't have a relation without some sort of definition of that relation. Uh, God is, the, the Father is unbegotten, and so if the, 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 the Son in his personhood is begotten, uh, then his personhood, his distinct subsistence, uh, comes from his relationship to the Father, likewise of, of the Spirit. So, and again, I know that's, these are difficult concepts to wrap your head around, um, but these are important caveats and distinctions we have to make. When we talk about begottenness or, or proceeding, uh, it is eternal, it's internal, and it relates to the person of the, the subsistences, not to their essence or their divinity. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in essence. Yeah, they, I mean, we can, you know, speak in, in some ways like, as the following the language of Scripture about, you know, uh, typically what that's been is, you know, okay, the Father planned redemption, the Son accomplished redemption, and the Spirit applies redemption. Uh, and, and, but it's, it's making the point that, no, there's really not such a sharp distinction. Now, you can say, in a, in a sense, the Son uh, accomplished redemption uniquely, but in his humanity as, as a man. Um, but that the whole Godhead was involved in, in all of uh, that work in the, you know, the deity of Christ. Um, yeah, so in, in essence, it is, it is speaking against a sharp distinction in uh, the economic trinity, if not kind of contradicting that <laughs> as a whole. Uh, and so in several operations, I think a lot of the proof texts that people argue for a distinction in the external operations of the Trinity, um, really you just have to look at those and say, no, this is talking about the humanity of Christ and not uh, him acting in his humanity and not in his deity. Um, but we'll come back to some of that when we get to the doctrine of Christ in, in chapter 8 uh, as well. All right. All right, good. You guys are taking it easy on me. All right, so let's, uh, in the last five minutes, let's end with this because I think this is appropriate. Now, again, a lot of high concepts, a lot of technical terminology, and again, so much of the church history, church's history has been devoted to trying to iron these out, get the language correct so that it best describes what we see in the scripture. Most Christians, most evangelicals at this point in a study like this would be saying, so what? Does this have anything to do with me? How could this possibly be practical in any sense? This is just you know, the medieval theologians arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of thing, uh, which is even an important discussion as well. <laughs> we just have to, that's always the flippant kind of uh, issue that's thrown out there, uh, mocking precision in theology. 
Uh, and so I appreciate that, uh, that our, our confession following the Savoy uh, adds and ends with this language. Which doctrine of the Trinity, and look at the strength of this assertion, the doctrine of the Trinity, and, and this, uh, by the way, is the, the first time that Trinity is used in this discussion. It's kind of funny. Uh, it doesn't start with that, but it finally does end with that and uses the word Trinity itself. Uh, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence on him. Now, again, this is some older language as well. Uh, but I, uh, I wrote a whole paper on this for one of our, um, uh, one of our ARBCA GAs years ago. So if you want a copy of that, I can give that to you. But it was basically just about this phrase. You know, how is it that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is, can be said to be the foundation of all of our communion with God and our comfortable dependence on him. Uh, this language is almost certainly from John Owen. So again, John Owen was uh, one of the was a Congregationalist and Independent minister. And uh, there were, I'm going to get it wrong. There were some, if I try to put the number on it, there were some uh, Congregationalist Independents that, uh, actually, Alec, you might know. There are five. Five uh, Independents at the Westminster Assembly. Now, the Westminster Assembly was Presbyterian-dominated. But there were five commissioners that were independents. That, that, so again, they believed in infant baptism, but they didn't agree with the church government of Presbyterianism. They were congregationalists uh, like we are. And uh, John Owen uh, worked with those other five who had been at the Westminster Assembly. But he also worked with those men and others on the Savoy Declaration, so the Independence uh, Confession of Faith. But John Owen was the only one who worked on the Savoy that hadn't been part of the Westminster Assembly. And why was John Owen not invited to be part of the Westminster Assembly? He was too young. <laughs> he was too young at that point. So this is a few years later, the independence, we want to take this excellent Westminster Confession, tweak it a little bit to fit our distinctives. Uh, and so, not all the time with absolute definiteness, but but generally, if there's something added to the Savoy that wasn't in the Westminster, uh, it's high likelihood that it was John Owen. And this language, even more so. Uh, if you've read uh, John Owen's Communion with God in Three Persons, this, this phrase almost uh, appears verbatim multiple times in that book. And he did write it a few years before the Savoy Declaration. Uh, it's an excellent book. Uh, if you want a little slightly abridged, updated version, the Puritan paperback version is very good. Uh, Communion with God. I think it's just called Communion with God, the Puritan paperback, but it's Communion with God in Three Persons. Um, and it's, it's about the doctrine of the Trinity, but really emphasizing that you know we have communion with the triune God, not just with the Son, not just with the Spirit, but with the triune God, and how devotionally important it is to remember that. And so he, he points out two things that uh, the, the Trinity is foundational for. All of our communion with God. Now, if you read communion with God in three persons, what does he mean by communion with God? It means basically anything and everything that we have to do with God. <laughs> and so it is Every way in which God relates to us and every way in which we relate to God, it's Trinitarian. 
and he emphasizes this over and over again. The, the base text for uh, his, his book, Communion with God in Three Persons, is Ephesians 2.18. It says, for to him we all have access by one spirit in, I'm getting it wrong, but uh, access uh, by one spirit in, in Christ Jesus, something like that. Or in him we all have access to. But anyway, it's, it's saying our access to the Father is through the Son, and it's by the Holy Spirit. And it's saying that's, that's the essence of, of our worship. And so every way that we commune with God is Trinitarian. It's all in the Son. It's all by the Spirit. It's all directed to, to God the Father. It's, it's every, every way in which we act to, 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 to God. It's Trinitarian and, and recognizing that. So our worship you know, it's, it's by the Spirit, it's through the Son, it's to the Father, uh, our, our prayer, anything in every way in which we relate to God, but every way in which God relates to us. And again, every aspect of our salvation from uh, really the covenant of redemption, which was Trinitarian, intra-Trinitarian, you know, compact agreement. Again, not just the Father planning it and the Son executing and the Spirit applying, but in each and every one of those stages, the entirety of the Trinity actually planning and accomplishing and applying our salvation. Uh, every way in which God relates to us, he, he does so in Trinity as the triune God. And so all of our communion with God, and that's what, what the book goes on. It says, okay, this aspect of the Christian life, this aspect of the Christian life, this aspect of the Christian life, it's Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then this final language of comfortable dependence on him. Now, comfortable we use in a slightly different way. It means that which brings comfort. Comforting is probably how we would put it. So our comforting trust, dependence upon God is also founded on the doctrine of the Trinity. And what he means by this is primarily, again, the very basis of our salvation is Trinitarian. The covenant of redemption and the united actions, the inseparable operations, if you will, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, why is that comforting? How is that comforting? Because we have the assurance that our salvation is not just dependent on one person of the Trinity, but on the united purpose and action and operation of the triune God. I think in some ways, you know, typically, some, even how we speak about the gospel sometimes, and I think this was uh, John Piper's phrase, he said something like, we, you know, we picture it as though the son wrestles the angry father to the floor of heaven and takes the whip out of his hand. You know, as though God the Father is the, is the God of wrath who is against us, and the, the son, you know, then is the good guy who, who kind of steps in and, and intervenes. Like, no, all along the way, from the very foundation of, of our, our salvation, the covenant of redemption itself, there was this united purpose, this united love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the elect. And uh, then doing every step along the way what needs to be done to accomplish and then to apply that redemption to us. And so, yes, that's comforting. We, we know it's not just one member of the Trinity against the other two so that we're not really sure if this is all going to work out. No, it's the whole Trinity involved in every aspect of our redemption. So our communion with God, our comfortable dependence on him, at the foundation of that is this doctrine of, of the Trinity. Three in one. Well, we need to stop. Uh, if you've got questions, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, this doctrine of the Trinity. We thank you for the communion with you in all uh, three persons, with uh, the one being of, of our God. We thank you for the comfortable, comforting dependence that we can have, knowing that our salvation, our redemption is secure because the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has purposed it and accomplished it and now applies it and will bring our salvation, our redemption to its preordained end, as surely as anything can be. We thank you for this. We simply bow our heads in worship, this great and divine mystery of the Trinity. Help us to, to think more clearly, more biblically, uh, when we think about you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the one divine name we pray. Amen.